You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 9th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, folks. Good to be back. Carol, let me ask you a question. Okay. What planet in the solar system has the most moons? Ooh, I know this now. Our solar system. It's now Saturn when it was Jupiter. That's right. Yay! Saturn has overtaken Jupiter because uh, astronomers discovered 20 new moons of Saturn in one <laughs> fell swoop. Oh, that's getting silly now. Now, Steve, it's what silly. are all of their names? They haven't been named yet. <laughs> Let's Damn name it. them. There's like a contest going on to name them if you want to get involved with that. But Yes. Mooney McMoonface and among mm-hmm. others. Yeah. <laughs> 17 of the 20 moons are retrograde. Cool. Uh, so opposite direction. They're probably all captured, captured asteroid, yep. asteroids. Yeah. That's cool, though. That's all right. And, yeah. But what's the best moon? Uh, our moon? 20. Around Saturn. Titan? Yeah. Titan. Uh, Enceladus, I'd say. There's, oh, there's, Enceladus. There's yeah. life, we're he- there's we're life on that damn moon. They're finding organic molecules yeah, like precursors out. to amino acids and things right. are spewing oh out of its geysers. We've got to get to that moon. Screw everything else. Get <laughs> to that moon. Come on. <laughs> what? I don't understand this. Bob, aren't you scared about what they'll find? I think it's, in my opinion, the best candidate for life outside of Earth. But it looks like Europa, right? It's like frozen and has the yeah. geysers where the water spews out. Yeah, it's not frozen on the inside. Yeah, exactly. It's got an ocean. Bob, you're not afraid that they're going to find like, you know, tentacled monsters on that planet? Oh, how Ooh, awesome that'd would that be? Cool. be? Well, Ooh. come on. Or something I can't even imagine. Even better. Like two tentacled monsters. <laughs> <laughs> nice pair of tentacles you got there. We'll name him Tentacles. <laughs> After the Greek god, right? <laughs> Uh, So we have a lot of shows coming up. I know we mentioned this, but we got to keep mentioning it. Uh, We have updated our events page. So if you just go to theskepticsguide.org and click on the events button, you'll see all of our upcoming events. There are tickets available for four extravaganza shows. Uh, There's a separate page for the extravaganza, but they're also listed on the events page. So get your ticket now before they sell out. They're going fast. Yeah, real quick. So we're going to be in Los Angeles on November 23rd. On January 31st, we're going to be in Pittsburgh, PA. On February 1st, we're going to be in Philadelphia, PA. And on February 2nd, we're going to be in Brooklyn, New York. Those are all the extravaganza shows. If you haven't been to one, they are a ton of fun and they are science infused. Mm-hmm. And and interactive. Mm-hmm. So you will be part of the show as well. They are an exercise in humiliation. <laughs> but, but mainly on our part. Yeah, exactly. Mainly on our part. Yeah. <laughs> we take most of the slings and arrows, so don't worry. Nobel Prize time has ah. come around again. It always seems oh, to come boy. around so fast. We had and Nobel Prizes win. last year. What's going on? <laughs> I know. It just seemed like a year ago that we had the other Nobel Prizes. So we're going to get to those in a moment. But Evan, you're going to start us off with a five to ten year update. Five to ten year update. This one takes us back to the year 2012. I recall 2012. Well, and you might recall that back in July of 2012, at the amazing meeting, I brought up a news item about fairy circles. 
in the country of Namibia. Oh, yeah. Do we have anyone hmm. on the show who knows anything about Namibia, maybe? Nothing. Oh, I love Namibia. Namibia. Kara, did you go see <laughs> the fairy circle? Did but you I go see? Even, I don't even know what a fairy circle is. Well, let me tell you a little bit about okay. them. They are mysterious. You got to get the word mysterious in there. <laughs> but they really are. It's a scientific mystery in a sense. They are mysterious reddish-hued circular-shaped patches dotted along about a 1,200-mile-long desert grassland region of the country. And these things, you can see them in satellite images, and they can be individual ones can be as large as several feet in diameter. And there are hundreds of thousands of these things. And they've been studied for quite some time. Now, the tribes, people in Namibia for many centuries, attributed them to what else? Supernatural causes. Mm-hmm. Gods. They were called the footprints of the gods, for example. And there's even a folklore that a dragon or dragons are dwelling underneath the ground and their poisonous breath is what causes the patches, kills the vegetation up above. Mm. Yeah. Scientifically speaking, though, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not, that's quite not right. true, Evan. Nah, that, that, that didn't really turn it. out to be, to be the case. You know, strangely enough, I could not find out exactly why these are called fairy circles. Now, I don't know who came up with the designation or where it caught on, but my guess is that this happened because European settlers, when colonization of Africa was all the rage, came over with their language, or our language, I should say, uh, because of terms such as fairy rings, which is something that we do have in Europe and in the United States, North America, I should say. So I think it eventually soaked into the culture and it's still used colloquially today. That's what are just fairy a hunch. rings? That's just a hunch. Yeah. So fairy rings, these are growths of mushrooms that appear to take on a ring shape. And mm. you may have seen them. You may have them in your backyard. I had them in my backyard in my old house in Cheshire. I had a couple of mushroom rings that, that actually grew. And I'm like, oh, look, fairy rings. Hmm. Now, for, for folklores concerning fairy rings, and I'll get back to the fairy circles in a second, Those date, the folklores for that dates back hundreds of years. And they're supposedly made by magical creatures such as fairies and elves and gremlins and Eskimos. Uh-huh. That's a, that's, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you, Bob. That's a Simpsons reference forever. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> uh, look it up. Look it up. It's a great one. It's, uh, now, supposedly these fairy rings, these mushroom rings, were portals, gateways to these creatures' magical realms. Ooh, yeah. No. <laughs> They're just mushrooms. They happen to just grow in circular patterns on these grassy surfaces. It's very, very common. So you don't have to apply anything supernatural to them. But and look, hey, circles are abundant in nature. It's you know, we like to think that a circle somehow denotes some sort of intelligence must be at hand. Nope. Circles happen all the time in nature. So back to Namibia and the fairy circles in this particular news item. Now, back in 2012, scientists had already been studying fairy circles of Namibia for quite some time, but they were having a hard time figuring out the cause. One of the theories that was alive in 2012 was that insect activity could have been the cause for the rings. And that was true with some other theories, which included plant toxins, radioactive soil, and plant spatial growth patterns. In other words, it's just how these grasses and plants fight for the limited water resources in this desert environment. So all of these scientific theories are... At, at conflict with you, with each other, but 
really can't, could not hone in on exactly what was going on here. We were talking about it in the context as a news item because there was a new update suggesting that perhaps the mystery had finally been solved because a paper that had been published showed evidence that a specific species of sand termite was responsible for these mysterious dirt rings. So the termites would live underneath the ground and they would eat the vegetation essentially from below. And as the vegetation, because of the sparse rainfall and that you'd get, uh, it would collect at the center and then the termites would eat that and then it would have to eat out further and further, sort of forming this larger, larger circle pattern essentially as the vegetation continued to grow outward. Termites would eat what was in the center and work their way to the outside. So that study was published in March of 2013 in the journal Science. So there you go. There was some more evidence added into the insect bucket, if I may say, uh, as far as what these fairy circles exactly were. The scientists from Germany, they measured the water content of the soil. They did a whole bunch of experiments, and they determined that there was termite activity in just about all of the fairy circles that they tested, and especially more recent ones, which had 100% termite activity. So these scientists said, okay, it's, it's looking more and more like termites are responsible. But there were issues with that particular theory. For example, why would termites create circular-shaped patches specifically? Uh, according to some of the critics, the studies did not address other key questions as to what's the primary factor that suddenly causes a plant to die. In other words, what starts the process of a small circle becoming a larger circle over, over time? And the study never really addressed that. So it was still not exactly seal, sealed, a sealed deal. Evan, was, did they test control areas that didn't have circles? Uh, mm. for, the, for the termites? Yeah, maybe there's, maybe there's termites everywhere. There are a lot of termites. There are a lot of termites. And, and, and yes, and that's sort of what leads into the current status or the most recent set of data that's been collected and published concerning the fairy circles, 2019. But before I get to that, I got to just get you to 2014 because fairy circles, it turns out, it's not just an African phenomena, Namibia or otherwise. They're in Australia too. And they were discovered in 2014. Those were being attributed to weather-related processes like heavy rainfall, extreme heat, and evaporation. And yes, there were termites also in the sands of Australia, but not nearly to sort of the degree that was discovered in Africa. In other words, it wouldn't make sense that the, for the amount of termites that they discovered in these rings would be creating these large areas as large as they would be. It would have been much, much more uh, smaller, mm -hmm. essentially. So it wasn't adding up. So they went ahead and did studies, and they released in 2019 brand new. Two new papers have been published, one in the journal Ecosphere and the other in the Journal of Arid Environments. That's cool. There's a Journal of Arid Environments. <laughs> and uh, we have Jennifer Willette to thank for this because she actually wrote about this earlier this year in 2019 and brought it to everyone's attention. So I'm referencing her article primarily in that. Thank you, Jennifer, friend of the Skeptic's Guide, of course. Cool. So the co one of the co-authors of the study, his name is Stefan Getzen of the University 
of Gottingen in Germany. That's a mouthful. <laughs> Here's what he said. Overall, overall, our study shows that termite constructions can occur in the area of fairy circles, but the partial location correlation between termites and fairy circles has no causal relationship. So no destructive mechanisms such as those from termites are necessary for the formation of the distinct fairy circle patterns. Hydrological plant-soil interactions alone are sufficient. So essentially they're saying termites need not apply. And because termites are sort of ubiquitous in these areas, you can't say that the termites are necessarily responsible. That's basically what they, what they were able to come up with. So the controversy, 2019, here we are talking about it again, continues those in the insect camp and those in the weather camp now, I suppose, are the ones vying for what might really be going on here. So it's a it's a real scientific uh, controversy uh, unfolding before. Our so eyes. it's it's back from it's now unsolved and back to being a mystery. Essentially, yes. And there's calls for more, of course, more studying to be done on this. And we'll see what else uh, what else they hypothesize out of, out of all of this. If any new theories essentially arise from it, but it's looking like what once what was once heavy in favor of the insects and the termites being responsible perhaps is really no longer the case and the balance is, is tilting in, in a different direction. So that's basically the update. We were talking about termites being responsible for this in 2012, and now we're talking about weather being responsible for them in 2019. Let's continue to see how this evolves. Yep. We'll have to do this in another five to 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> basically, yeah. Uh, all right. All right, thanks, Evan. Thanks. Now we come to the Nobel Prizes. We have chemistry, physics, and medicine to talk about tonight. And Kara, you're going to start us off with the chemistry prize. The 2019 Nobel Prize in Chemistry has been awarded to, I love this guy's name, John Goodenough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you actually pronounce it good enough? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this reminds enough? me. Yeah, I, I had a friend in high school whose last name was By The Way. But yeah. It turns no. out that his parents actually changed it. Like it was Bythway, but they changed it to By the Way. They like added the E. I don't know, to make it easier for people to pronounce or something. I wonder All if right. he used to be like good enough and then they changed we, it. We've talked about him on the show a couple of times before just because of more recent work that he's doing on mm -hmm. batteries. John Goodenough, M. Stanley Whittingham, and Akira Yoshino shared the, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, and it's um, all about lithium-ion batteries. Um, there are a lot of really great quotes that came out of the committee talking about their contributions to lithium-ion, so a little bit of background um, on kind of the lithium-ion revolution. It really began in the 60s and 70s, and that's where a lot of this work actually started. If you think about it, when cars first came on the scene around the turn of the century, just after the turn of the century, they were actually utilizing battery technology in their first designs. Isn't that crazy? But they realized yeah. that they were just way too heavy. And obviously, we didn't have a way to recharge them. Um, you know, batteries have been around for quite some time, not lithium ions. That's what we're going to talk about. But it was always an idea within the automotive industry that batteries be involved. Then they just realized that petroleum was much faster, easier, cheaper. Yeah, the, the battery-operated electric cars in, you know, the, at the beginning of the auto mm -hmm. industry were great if you're driving around in a city, but yeah. there was no way to recharge them between cities. That was right. the problem. When Ford came out 
basically put their chips down on the gasoline engine that killed the electric car. It killed, yeah. It killed everything. Petroleum became king. All of the research became in that area. And then in like the 60s was really, I think, when it started to come to a lot of people's um, realization that emissions were not good. Like things, like cities were becoming smoggy. Air pollution was becoming a real problem. I think there were even some mutterings of climate change this early. And so that's when researchers started to say, okay, I think we need to take another stab at this battery thing. Um, and it took several, several years to get batteries to a place where they would become a viable option, not just for cars, but also for, you know, um, the ubiquitous electronics that we use right now. So if you want to look, maybe just break down really, quickly the contributions of each individual to this work. So we'll start with Whittingham. Um, in the 70s, he was doing research on superconducting materials and, you know, doing like classic solid state chemistry research. And he actually developed a new cathode material, titanium disulfide. So we know that batteries have an anode and a cathode, right? They're these two um, terminals mm-hmm. and right. that um, there's a circuit within them and it's the the release and recapture of these electrons that actually makes them work. Um, talking about rechargeable batteries now. Um, so he was trying to develop a new cathode material because batteries were just not very powerful. Um, and he came up with titanium disulfide that was better at the ions moving around, right? So there were a lot more free ions because using lithium um, really aided in that. And that made these kind of new classes of materials. Then good enough improved on his work, he actually realized that a metal oxide material could hold even more energy than the sulfide that Whittingham utilized. So instead of using titanium disulfide, he decided to use a cobalt oxide um, cathode, and that actually doubled the voltage and also increased the energy capacity of the battery, which made it, you know, more viable in commercial applications. And then after that, Yoshino was focusing on the anode of the battery. And he realized that lithium had always been a problem because they would explode. And that was just not safe in commercial products. And the interesting thing is he was actually looking at electroconductive polymers in, in research that was related, but also not related. And it allowed him to come up with this realization that instead of using um, lithium metal on the anode, he could use um, something called petroleum coke, which I had never heard of, which is a carbon matrix. And when they used um, Yoshino's new anode with Goodenough's new cathode, all of a sudden we had a safe lightweight, and very efficient lithium-ion battery. And soon after that, Sony released their first lithium-ion, and we've only seen improvements since then. But as a lot of the Nobel Committee have pointed out, the batteries that we're using, the lithium-ions that we're using right now to power Teslas are based on the very technology that these three chemists developed, even starting in the 70s. Wow. So we've seen small iterations, but their developments were, you know, altering for the field. So um, a lot of people are saying, the time has come, we're really excited to see this recognition. Almost everybody in the world is utilizes a lithium ion battery in their daily lives. Um, They're everywhere. And they've really changed the way that we interact with our technology. So super cool. And congratulations once again, to doctors John Goodenough, M. Stanley Whittingham and Akira Yoshino. Definitely deserves it. I hope that in 2039, 
the Nobel Prize is for whatever the next battery is, right? Yeah. Whatever, whatever next battery technology tra- transforms our world again. Yeah, some some big change, like a, yeah. a real oh yeah, a nano quantum battery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, thanks. Okay, Bob, you're next with the Nobel Prize in Physics. Oh yeah, the Royal Swedish Academy of Science announced some Nobel winners for 2019 this week, as we've been talking about. Um, we all have our favorite go-to category uh, for the Nobel prizes. For us, for me anyway, it's the Nobel Prize for best podcast. Uh, oh, wait, they don't, they don't have that yet. Uh, mine, of, mine, of course, is physics. Hello. So the prize for physics was won by two astronomers, Michael Mayer and Didier Kalos, who shared it with cosmologist James Peebles. Uh, Nobel judges said that they all three transformed our ideas about the cosmos. So I'll start with uh, one half of the prize going to the two astronomers. Uh, uh, Mayer uh, is an astrophysicist and professor emeritus of astronomy at the University of Geneva. And uh, Didier Kalos is a professor of physics at the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge University and the University of Geneva. Wow. I mean, imagine working at Cambridge University and the University of Geneva. Ugh. I hate I mean. my workplace. <laughs> so, um, but the work that they did, they did, they didn't do their work there, unfortunately. They did the work at France's Haute Province Observatory. So let me throw out, a, let me throw out something. 51 Pegasi B. Mean anything? Yep. Yes, oh, yeah. con- yes, that's a star, right? Close Something. planet around a star. So this, uh, they uh-huh. published a paper in 1995, and this was not the first exoplanet discovery that was done. That was a, actually a planet that was orbiting a pulsar, and it was very bizarre. But um, it was actually the first planet around a, a sun-like star, the very first exoplanet around a star like that. Uh, not a dead star, but an active star. So this, this is, so a huge milestone, obviously. Now, the idea to actually find these exoplanets came out in the 50s, earlier than, than I thought it was. Their idea just did not have the technology to, uh, to make it work, and it, it, did, it did prove ultimately to be workable. Uh, the idea is that an orbiting planet will tug on a star gravitationally while it's in orbit around it, or basically they tug on each other. But it's giving the, 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 star, the star a tug, and that will Doppler shift uh, the light, so blue when it's pulled towards the Earth, and then red when it's pulled away away from us. And detecting that was extremely subtle, but that was what they were able to finally do in in the nineties. And they the scientists realized, I think, in the, in the mid to late eighties, that yeah, the technology is getting there. We're really close. Let's start. Let's start really trying to do this. And eventually, they did do that for the first time in ninety five. And what they found was a Jupiter mass exoplanet uh, that completed its orbit. Only in every four days, which was so fast that they doubted it. They they actually studied they studied their uh, their results for for a really long time. They went back and forth, and they just really had had a problem with it because it just didn't make a lot of sense based on on uh, on what they knew at the time. Which of course is was so great about science. One of the greatest things about science is that you can make these amazing discoveries, and often it's not even believed because it just it doesn't go with uh you know the zeitgeist of the of the time. So, and the rest, of course, was history. Now we've discovered over 4,000 exoplanets, an amazing number. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We've, we've devised multiple uh, methods uh, to, to detect them, and we're even beginning uh, the earliest uh, investigations of uh, examining exoplanet uh, atmospheres. Just an amazing, amazing discovery. Uh, Well-deserved. Uh, the second half of the Nobel Prize for Physics goes to James Peebles. He's a professor emeritus at Princeton, and he's also the Albert Einstein Professor of Science at Princeton. Uh, what an amazing title. Oh, boy. So uh, every every year, the Academy puts together a, a basically a scientific background paper 
to, to describe their reasoning. So for this one, they said that uh, Peebles wrote a 1965 paper talking about how, how dark matter is necessary for galaxy formation. And that, hmm. they said, was the moment when cosmology embarks on its way to become a science of precision and a tool to discover new physics. So that was a milestone, clearly a milestone to really understand you know, the universe cosmology at, at, its, at its biggest scales. Michael Turner of the University of Chicago said, Jim's been involved in almost all of the major developments in the, since the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation in 1965 and has been the leader of the field for all that time. Peebles and, uh, and his colleagues. So here's, here's some of the things that, they, that he and his colleagues did. Amazing. Uh, Peebles and his colleagues had predicted cosmic background radiation. They, they predicted it. And the minute variations found in that uh, is where matter was clumped. They, they, uh, they predicted that as well. And they also proposed the acceleration, uh, the accelerated expansion of the universe that was due to dark energy. Also, uh, key predictors of, of that major discovery, uh, which also won its own uh, uh, Nobel Prize years ago. But I got to end on a little bit of a downer on this one because you know, people are rightly complaining about this. And a lot of it has to do with uh, Vera Rubin, who was an astrophysicist who was the first person, a woman who discovered, who gave us the first evidence of, of dark matter. Come on. How amazingly important was that? And uh, she did it by solving the galaxy rotation problem. Uh, spiral galaxies often will, uh, will, will rotate in a way that makes no sense based on the luminous mass that we could detect. There had to be some hidden mass in there, a lot of it, to, to explain the rotation, and that is, that is dark matter. And uh, she didn't predict dark matter uh, initially. That was from Swiss astrophysicist Fritz Zwicky in the 1930s. Yeah. But she was the first one, first one to, uh, to, have, uh, to have verified, you know, re- solid evidence for this. So for years, the people were saying, oh, she's going to get nominated this year. Never happened. She died in 2016. Uh. And it's just, it really is, it really is I, I, a slap in the face, I, as I see it. It really is uh, a shame. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein, who's an astrophysicist, has said, it's a shame that the Nobel Prize Committee brazenly refused to give Vera Rubin the prize for finding the first concrete evidence of dark matter. And now she's dead and ineligible to receive it forever. Uh, Thomas Mm -hmm. Zabushin, uh, Associate Administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate, said, I too wish this would have come earlier so that Dr. Rubin could have been included. Her work has fundamentally changed how we think of the universe. And it's just really, yet again, here we go. We've only had three women win the Physics Nobel Prize. Three in in all this time. Um, and so it, it really is the bias, I think, is, is still there. It's, it's really uh, disappointing. And hopefully we, we can get past it at some point and not just, you know, and, and really and recognize people that essentially, you know, aren't white old guys. I mean, that, that's the bottom mm-hmm. line. Um, if you're not that, it's clearly uh, harder for you to be, to be recognized the way people have been recognized for, for decades, over a century now. Yeah, Vera Rubin really was an oversight. Yeah, uh, it's hard. It's hard mm-hmm. to rectify that one. All right, one more. We got the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, and this one goes also to three researchers, also three guys: William Kalin, Sir Peter Ratcliffe, and Greg Semenza, for their discoveries of how cells sense and adapt to oxygen availability. So this is extremely wonky and technical, which is what I yeah. love about it. Uh, This is good, solid, basic science, good old reductionist research, figuring out how stuff actually works at a cellular level 
and then going a step further and then going a, you know, like just totally closing that loop at, at the most fundamental level that you can get to. And of course, oxygen, kind of important to biology, you know. Just a little. Yeah. So uh, animals, of course, who emerged 500 or so million years ago, breathe oxygen. And so we've had about 500 million years for evolution to tweak the our physiological equilibrium and how we deal with, with oxygen. So I'm going to very quickly go over the science. I'll try to make it as interesting as I can. But if you really want to look at the details, then I wrote a, a, a sort of like an executive summary kind of thing on um, science-based medicine. And I, from that, I link to an even more in-depth discussion on the Nobel Prize site, uh, which links to original research if you really want to get you know, detailed. So you can go as deep as you want. But here's the, the quickie summary. Scientists knew for a long time, uh, back to like the 1920s, that obviously the body responds to oxygen and there are mechanisms to uh, equilibrium mechanisms to maintain the delivery of oxygen to every cell in the body. Uh, one of those mechanisms is the carotid bodies. These are sensors in the carotid arteries. They respond to pressure, but they also respond to oxygen. When oxygen levels drop, they send signals to the heart to say pump more blood up to the brain. But we didn't know how they sense oxygen. Uh, another very important homeostatic mechanism is in the kidneys. The kidneys produce an, a hormone called erythropoietin or EPO and or EPO, we could just call it EPO. And EPO increases the body's production of red blood cells. You may have heard of this because athletes, especially like marathon, long distance type athletes, will dope with EPO to increase their red blood cell count to give them an edge. So it's it's illegal yeah, to, to use it as a performance enhancing hormone. But it's obviously essential to just normal life. It's how you maintain your red blood cell count. Uh, if you, say, uh, moved to Denver or went to a higher altitude, part of adapting to that higher altitude is that your body senses the decrease in oxygen. It releases more EPO. You make more red blood cells so that you can deliver more oxygen to the tissue, right? But again, how does it know? How does it know how much oxygen there is? There must be a specific mechanism. So these three guys were all involved in discovering the details of that cellular mechanism. For example, Semenza discovered a protein complex, which he called hypoxia-inducible factor, or HIF, which is comprised of two transcription factors. Those are proteins that regulate the transcription of DNA into proteins, right? Into messenger RNA and then ultimately into proteins. He called those transcription factors HIF-1-alpha and ARNT. Now, that's, that's very intriguing because if you... Uh, a transcription factor is exactly what you would expect would be a regulatory mechanism. If the oxygen levels drop, for example, this protein might be involved in increasing the transcription of proteins that, that enact whatever the homeostatic mechanism is. So going further, his work led to other research who discovered that when oxygen levels are decreased, HIF-1-alpha levels increased, which increased the transcription of the EPO gene. So that's one link in the chain. But then, but the, how did that work? How did decreasing levels of oxygen increase HIF-1-A alpha, alpha levels? So other researchers discovered another enzyme, one that degrades HIF-1-alpha, and that is oxygen, ultimately oxygen-dependent, right? So when oxygen levels are low, the rate at which 
HIF1 alpha breaks down is decreased, so levels increase, thereby increasing EPO levels. Right, so that was the next link in the chain. This is then where Kalin comes in. He was researching the effects of oxygen on cancer cells, specifically in a disease called von Hippel-Lindau disease, or VHL. This is a genetic disease that predisposes to cancer. The VHL gene prevents the onset of cancer and is linked to higher levels of hypoxia-regulating protein. So there's a link now between cancer and hypoxia. Solid tumors, cancers, are generally tend to be hypoxic because it's hard to deliver enough blood and oxygen to this growing clump of tissue, right? And so cancer cells usually have mutations which make them relatively hypoxia tolerant. And this von Hippel-Lindau disease, VHL, is a genetic mutation that basically gets you one step there already. So you're like, you're already predisposed to having cancer. He found out that the VHL protein right, the one that's mutated in this disease, is needed to tag other proteins with ubiquitin, which marks them for degradation. Did you say ubiquitin? Yes, ubiquitin <laughs> nice. is a protein. It's Guess everywhere. How it is. Yes, it's everywhere. Right. <laughs> so without VHL, the degradation of certain proteins is decreased and their levels will rise. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. now you see where, sure. this, where the connection is being made. This is where Ratcliffe comes in. He discovered that VHL interacts with HIF-1-alpha and is necessary for the degradation of HIF-1-alpha at normal oxygen levels. Uh, and then finally, Ratcliffe and Kalin, at this point, they're like, hey, our research is intersecting, so let's just do this together. They simultaneously published uh, that at normal oxygen levels, hydroxyl groups are added to, at two specific positions in HIF-1-alpha, allowing VHL to bind and mark HIF-1-alpha for degradation. So that's the connection with oxygen. It's big. It's a chemical reaction that causes hydroxyl groups to be added to the protein, which then allows for the binding and then the whole chain of events that we talked about. So that was the final connection. So that connects oxygen all you know, through multiple steps to increases in EPO levels, which then lead to more red blood cells. So yeah, as I said, very wonky, very technical but that's science, in my opinion, at its best, right? Just these curious scientists without really thinking about what purpose is this going to serve, just how does this work? Well, then how mm-hmm. does that work? And then what happens? Let's just keep digging and digging till you get to the total base. Gold! How yeah. long were they working on these questions, Steve? Probably you know, whole careers. Well, yeah. A year. Yeah, this is like a career's worth of research we're talking about. Decades. Many decades. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But – of course, there's obvious applications for this. We don't know how exactly it's going to translate, but understanding all of this can have implications for cancer, obviously. Now, anything that allows cancers to thrive is an opportunity to intervene and prevent them from thriving, right? Pre- sure. Reversing Blockers. their adaptation to hypoxia, for example. But also a lot of infections are dependent on oxygen levels. It also could have implications for recovery from stroke, anemia, wound healing, uh, and other things as well. So there's a lot of, you know, again, Understanding things at a fundamental level, of course, it's going to have implications. You don't have to really worry about that when you're doing the research. Now it's the job of clinicians to try to translate this into some kind of specific treatment. Uh, But I I also like this research because you will notice that nowhere in this chain of events does the scientists invoke chi or life huh. energy. Thank goodness. Or the, mm-hmm. you know, at no point is there, and then a miracle happens. You know, <laughs> right. <it's, laughs> like, this is all something strictly mechanistic, right? Because our bodies are machines. And that's sort of the meta experiment always going on in the background of this kind of biological basic science research. Our bodies are freaking machines, and you don't have to invoke any kind of magical energy in order to make them work, in order to make them work. 
Also, it's humbling, right? The This is complex, and I went into enough detail. Oh, yeah. Really, the thing you're going to walk away from this is, because you're not going to remember anything I said tomorrow, but the thing <laughs> that you're going to walk away with is, wow, this is complicated, right? The body yeah. is a complicated, homeostatic, dynamic equilibrium, right? And that's how the body works. And simplistic notions of, oh, this is low, so let me increase it, or this is good, so more is better. Any of that kind of stuff is hopelessly naive. Sometimes that works out, but we've already picked all that low-hanging fruit, uh, and and we're way beyond that. Now, trying to interfere with these complex homeo- homeostatic sim- systems is complicated, and yet the basically the entire supplement industry is based upon a ridiculously simplistic notion about how the body works, which is belayed by all this kind of research, you know? This is why pseudoscientists fail, right? Because they are not operating at this level. And this is the level at which the body is actually functioning. So very, very cool. It's great. There's problems with the Nobel Prize, which we've talked about in the past. But it's great that every year we get to celebrate just straight up science. You know, and I think Absolutely. it is a good thing. Good thing for science communication, ultimately. Definitely. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, guys, for helping me present the 2019 Nobel Prizes uh, in science. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses offers valuable, in-depth content that you can trust with thousands of, of objective, unbiased lectures from respected professors who really, really know their stuff. Yeah, and the topics are really far-ranging, from microbiology to the Black Plague, surviving in the wild to building a better vocabulary. And my favorite part, you can watch or listen anytime, anywhere with The Great Courses Plus app. We are recommending to SGU listeners to check out their new course, Earth at the Crossroads, Understanding the Ecology of a Changing Planet. This course is going to break down how ecological systems work together to create huge changes in a short amount of time and what we can do about it. So stop second guessing or even third guessing. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. Our listeners get a full month of unlimited access for free. Wow. Just sign up now to get started using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. We have a couple of other quick news items that we're going to do. Then we have a great interview actually coming up uh, later in the show with Bruce Hood, who's a developmental psychologist. He's been on the show before. He's awesome. Another great science communicator. So stay tuned for that interview. But uh, before we get to that, we're going to do quick two quick news items. Jay, can we run a jet on electricity without jet fuel? Um, this is a little bit more complicated because we could be talking about hybrid solutions. It's a hybrid. <laughs> it's a hybrid. I was waiting for that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but because I said it, I usually don't say that if I say the word <laughs> hybrid. But I haven't said it in so long. So anyway, NASA is indeed working on electric airplanes. This is great news because air travel represents up to 9% of the anthropogenic greenhouse gases. So I said that jet fuel is very expensive. It is very expensive. It's probably only going to get more expensive. So this is a big challenge for NASA and the commercial industry because many components of electric motors and batteries are super heavy. These things are not light. You know, when you build an electric motor, it's got a ton of weight to it. So NASA's Advanced Air Vehicles Program, or the AAVP, they're already trying to solve the problem, like developing lightweight and small inverters. You keep reading about these inverters. So what are they? These components convert alternating current, known as AC, into direct current, known as DC. AC, DC, right? Remember the band? Oh, yeah, back Mm. in black. 
So the existing technology today, like motors, generators, and power conversion electronics, they're much too heavy and large to not only fit but to work on an aircraft. They're just, just the technology is, is enormous and it, it just won't work with, with what we have today. So the weight issue is similar to rocket technology. Remember we've talked about this? It takes more fuel to bring more fuel up. And you just get into this fuel loop where if you want to bring more fuel, you got to spend more fuel. And you, you can get to a point where it's just not worth it anymore. You just stop. Well, that's that's the problem that's going on right now with our current technology and the idea of building an, a fully electric airplane. So NASA realized that they need a state-of-the-art lightweight material that will help create lighter and much smaller electronics. General Electric has signed a $12 million contract with NASA to develop silicon carbide technology or to advance the existing technology is more accurate. This material is used today to create these high-temperature, high-voltage electronics, and GE is trying to make Silicon carbide meet the efficiency and power and size requirements NASA has outlined. So, for example, NASA wants an inverter that is no larger than a normal size suitcase and capable of generating a megawatt of electricity. And don't forget, a megawatt of electricity is a huge amount of power. It could power up to a thousand homes. So, a suitcase that can generate one megawatt. Well, Jay, it's yeah. not generating. A megawatt. It's handling a megawatt. It's ha- you're right. It's, ha- it's handling a megawatt. You're right. I'm sorry. But, you, but yeah, that's just to be clear. Yeah, it's not a power generator. It's just that you. But you need that in order to make like an engine work. You also need something that could generate that that much energy, or or store it or whatever. That's another limiting factor we're going to run into. But if you don't have, if the electronic equipment itself can't handle enough power to run the engines without being too heavy to fly, it's a no go. Right. So that's kind exactly. of the problem they're they're trying to solve right now. So this proposed new technology will, will reduce energy consumption, it'll reduce noise and operational costs, and the industry reports that advancements in power electronics and new materials are making it possible to reach these goals sooner than you might think. So NASA has a goal of reaching this tech by 2035, and the GE researchers are saying that they have prototypes that meet the power, size, and efficiency requirements today. Now, don't get excited. When they say today... They've got some of the puzzle pieces, but not all the puzzle pieces. And they're not ready for commercial use, but are, but are the foundation of some of this exciting new technology that's going to be coming soon. Now, these systems are being developed at NASA's electric aircraft testbed, also known as the NEAT in Sandusky, Ohio. They're saying that this technology can one day be used from a two-person aircraft all the way to a 20-megawatt airliner. A 20-megawatt airliner. Wow. That is really cool, is. man. So we'll likely see a hybrid version of these new aircraft first, and then as the technology continues to improve, they can move it to 100% electric. Okay, Jay, it's who's that noisy time. Guys, last week I played this noisy. Now, I said that this was a data set that had been interpreted into music. That was my my clue. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of emails. A lot of people were like, what the heck? And they gave me these guesses. So check it out. I got a guess from Josh Gister. He said, hey, this week's sound has to be an audio interpretation of Twitter's data stream with notes played when people are suspended for being jerks. <laughs> oh, God. Love the show and hope you all can swing up to Boston sometime after your big 
Melbourne trip. We are coming to Boston. We yep. are negotiating for an extravaganza in Boston. Yeah. That date uh, will be announced as soon as it's finalized. Stay tuned. Got another email from a listener named Brett Kruger. And Brett said, I've been listening to the SGU for about two years now. And this is my first guess at Who's That Noisy? It sounds like it is the sea organ located in Zadar, Croatia, which turns the movement of incoming waves into harmonic sounds. Cool. That's not correct. Uh, but I did get multiple people who wrote that one in. Now, I did play this on the show a couple of years ago. And if you don't know what it is, check it out. The sea organ located in Z- Zadar, Croatia. It's a beautiful sound. Very cool thing. There's pictures and videos you can see of it working. But that is not correct. I got a couple of more guesses here. James Hodson wrote in. Hi, Jay. Uh, James from Melbourne. Melbourne, 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 Melbourne. All the different ways we pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> the most uh, recent Who's That Noisy sounds like an installation I heard in Alaska by the composer John Luther Adams called The Place Where You Go to Listen in Fairbanks, which takes data from weather systems to create a kind of oral environment. That is also not correct, but the uh, but this guy, James, says me and my brother Barbaro are booked to see you guys in a few months when you're down here in Australia. Catch you all then. Hope hope you're well. We are well. We're excited, and we're coming to your house for dinner. <laughs> Can't wait for that. <laughs> Invite or not, we'll be there. That's right. But we have a winner, and there is one winner this week, and there can only be one winner. Why? Because there's, you know, emails are time stamped, and it's the person that writes in first. I don't care if yours came in two seconds afterwards. I have to have a cutoff somewhere, and that's the cutoff, my friends. So Justice Smith wrote in and said, Hey, Jay, I knew this week's noisy. As soon as I heard it, a team from NASA took a Hubble deep space image and turned it into sound. Check this out, guys. Different parts of the image produce different kinds of sound. According to the team, stars and compact galaxies make shorter and clearer sounds, while spiraling galaxies produce more complex, longer notes. Time time flows left to right, and the frequency of sound changes from the bottom to the top, ranging from 30 to 1,000 hertz. Objects near the bottom of the image produce lower notes, while those near the top produce higher ones. Pretty cool. So let me play it again. This is a very... Very cool, noisy. Very science fictiony. Very, very science fictiony. Love it. Mm-hmm. I have a new noisy for you guys this week. Are you ready? Sure. Sounds like Mr. Toad starting up his jalopy. (laughs) (laughs) So in this particular noisy, I want specifics because without giving away anything, it does sound like something that we're all kind of familiar to, I bet. Uh, Just be very specific. I'm going to be very picky on what to win on this one. And you can email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org if you have guesses or if you have another noisy that you heard. You know you're hearing noises. You've got to send them in to me, and I will put them into my consideration matrix. All right. Thank you, Jay. Hey, Steve. Yes. Did you know that the SGU has a Patreon? Um, I was aware of that, yeah. So <laughs> I'd hope cool. so. So we have something really cool. This is a late-breaking development. We got 
the phaser rifles that you may have heard us talk about before. And I didn't give all the specifics on what the phaser rifle is and what it means. So here are the details. This Saturday, by the time this show drops or by the time, by the time you're listening to this program, Alpha Quadrant 6, our science fiction review show that me, Bob, and Steve do, we did a full build of a custom-built phaser rifle that is in the Star Trek universe that was built by a friend of ours named David Tremont, who works at Weta Workshop in New Zealand. And if you don't know who and what Weta is, look them up online. But Weta, in short, is an amazing special effects prop building company. Our friend David built us a custom-designed phaser rifle, Star Trek phaser rifle from the original series. Now, when I say from, it wasn't actually in the original series. It's just supposed to belong in that Star Trek In the aesthetic frame. of right. the original series. Yeah. Bob, Steve, and I designed the phaser ourselves. David built it. We he engineered it. He yeah. engineered it. He constructed them. He fabricated them. Now, we are giving away one of these phaser rifles to SGU patrons, SGU members, and Alpha Quadrant 6 patrons. You are automatically entered if you are a patron. I'm going to have a website up that I will announce next week where you could see the finished product, but you can see us build these phaser rifles on alphaquadrant6.com or our YouTube channel. It's going to be the latest video that we have out, but if you're listening to this a couple of months down the road, um, just go there and take a look at Star Trek phaser rifle and you'll see us you know, build them and talk about it. Um, this is super exciting. Now, David specifically did this for us to help us gain more patrons because we have a goal of 4,000 patrons. And when we hit 4,000 patrons, what we're going to do is we're going to do a couple of very important things. One, we are going to have a 12-hour show, a 12-hour live stream show. Um, you've heard me talk about it before, but it's still happening. We're still getting revved up about it. We're hoping that sometime next year that we can do this. And when we do the 12-hour show, we will be giving away to one lucky winner, this amazing hero-level prop. When I say hero-level prop, I mean this prop is as good as they get. This was built by a master prop builder. Yeah, it's movie quality. It's movie quality. It's 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 amazingly solid. It's beautiful. It does everything that you would want a phaser rifle to do, except it doesn't actually disintegrate people. Can you set it to stun? It is really, Evan, it's so cool. I can't wait to show it to you. Next time that you're in the studio, I'll, you can take a look. The, these things are just remarkable how well how well built they are. And we got when we built this, when we hand-built it, we got to see like how he did it, how he fabricated these pieces. Um, so we go into detail. We interview David on the Alpha Quadrant 6 show, so you can feel free to go take a look at that. But if you want in on this you have to become a patron of of one of our two shows, either alphaquadrant6.com or you can go to theskepticsguide.org. Become a patron. You're automatically entered. If, you, if you're a patron of both, you have two entries. That said, we are super excited about the 12-hour show and, and hitting our goal of 4,000 patrons. And again, if you have any questions, you want to see pictures and all that, it, all the answers and information will be either in that Alpha Quadrant 6 episode or up on theskepticsguide.org website. All right. Thanks, Jay. Okay, guys, we're ready to go on with our interview with Bruce Hood, as is uh, often the case, a longer uncut version of the interview, about 40 minutes or so, will be available uh, as premium content for our patrons. Uh, we're going to put about half of that as an excerpt into the show. But if you are a patron, you can skip ahead you know, to science or fiction if you're going to listen to the whole uncut uh, interview. We are joined now by Bruce Hood. Bruce, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Hi, guys. 
And Bruce is a developmental psychologist who we've had on the show before, the author of many excellent books. And we're talking to you now about your latest book, Possessed, Why We Want More Than We Need. So this is not about demonic possession. Uh, this is about owning stuff. Why, why do people like to own stuff? Wait, this is a problem? around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell us about your research. How did you get involved with this question? Well, I've been interested in uh, our unusual relationship with physical objects for some time now. Um, and uh, some of my early work uh, on the supernatural thinking and the magical thinking was the way that we have peculiar reactions to objects which we think are possessed by demons or the evil essence of murderers. So I did that stunt many years ago, asking people to put on a cardigan and then say, would you still put on a cardigan if you knew it was uh, it belonged to Jeffrey Dahmer or something mm -hmm. like that? Everyone reacts in a very bizarre way. So I've been very interested in the way that we have this relationship with objects and possessions. And that kind of developed into a kind of appreciation that these are things which are an extension of ourselves in many ways or other people. So we, we see personal possessions as, as not just being kind of you know unconnected to the owner, but actually having a deeper psychological connection. That's why we like memorabilia, and why we value original authentic items which have a very close connection with people we admire, and conversely why we don't like to come into close contact with things which we feel might be contaminated. And so when I started to look more about this kind of work, I mean, I, I was researching where does it start from, where does it begin? And um, I was very interested in children's first attachment objects, so the teddy bear mm -hmm. blankets. And so I started to uh, do some research with Paul Bloom at Yale, and we were looking at this, uh, this notion of authentic objects. And it comes down to this idea that there is this essence that we attribute to things which makes something um, irreplaceable or unique. And that's why we value original works of art rather over you know things which are identical or indistinguishable physically so we have this kind of deep psychological connection with our possessions to the extent that actually um part of who we are is is kind of extended into all our personal possessions and, and our wealth and things that we own and this was a point made by william james the one of the kind of fathers of psychology the american psychologist who, who said that you know the self who you are is not just your body and mind, but everything that you can claim possession of. So this is really the, the premise of the book. Is that where does this come from? How does this manifest in different cultures? What is property? Because it's something that we just assume and we don't even think about it. But actually, when you start to look about property and ownership and the rights of access, you suddenly realize that your whole life is controlled um, by laws, so laws of ownership, laws of property, and uh, your whole identity, to some extent, is in the physical extension of the things that you own. But I also address in the book, and this is, I think, a really interesting new territory, is how are these things changing now that the digital re you know, revolution is changing the nature of books and recordings and, and things. So it's a really broad strokes approach looking at the whole relationship humans have with objects, why we accumulate things, what compels us to want things we don't really want in the first place, and what's going to happen in the future. So uh, what are some of the basic cons uh, components of this concept of ownership that first click into place with young kids? Well, I think uh, in the book I, I briefly talk about the way that um, children start to appreciate the way that they're, uh, they can control the world around them, literally young babies, okay? So they start off pretty rhetorically immature, but they kind of learn to – 
pick up rattles and bang things. And, and so they, they, they start to learn the contingency of their actions. And control is actually one of the fundamentals of ownership because, you know, if you suddenly lose control of your body, for example, and you're a neurologist, so you'll know these conditions where people suddenly have this alien hand syndrome, mm-hmm. um, it suddenly belongs to someone else. It's not theirs. So I think the, the primeval origins, if you like, of ownership is this uh, appreciation of the contingency of your actions and the control of the world around you. And, of course, when you don't own something, that's exactly the point, that you, know, you can't control it or it's taken away from you. So babies start off literally interacting with the world and banging rattles and sticking things in their mouths and teddy bears and all that stuff. But as they grow up, they learn that they have access to some things but not others. So you know, initially babies are prevented from touching things which are potentially dangerous for them. But as they get older, they say, no, you can't have that. That's your brain brothers or you can't have that that doesn't belong to you so they learn they have to learn to understand the rules that not everything is open access there are some things that they can you know they can own and some things belong to other people and then they kind of have to work out the rules like who owns what who's likely to own what so you might think well that's kind of straightforward but you know again we're talking about very young children here how do they how do they figure out you know who's uh whose uh, bag that is or whose uh, wallet that is and so on. So there are, there are these kind of fundamentals, like if someone's holding it, they're likely to be the owner as opposed to a thief. So there's some basic principles of ownership that children seem to appreciate quite early on, literally you know, two to three years of age. But even that, um, you know, that develops with experience, uh, develops with, uh, with cultures, because not all cultures operate with the same rules of ownership. So I talk about, for example, in the book, the, um, the last hunter-gatherer tribes which are left on the planet, the Hazda of Tanzania. They don't really have the same concepts of ownership that we operate with in the West. So for them, you don't really own anything. Uh, you're, you can be in possession of it, but if you're not using it, I can help myself to it. So that's like going over to your neighbors and borrowing their lawnmower. If they're not using it, just taking it. So, well, you're not using it, so I'm going to use it. And, and that turns out to actually be a very optimal way of thinking about ownership when you're a hunter-gatherer tribe because you can't carry a lot of stuff around with you. And so you have to really kind of be uh, – you have to optimize the usage of things. And it turns out there's been some very interesting studies looking at the emergence of early civilizations and the success of these uh, hunter-gatherer tribes. And they would have had to have had a, uh, uh, this kind of principle we call demand sharing where no one actually owns anything outright. It's just a case of you know what's good for the group. Yeah, so and you talk about that as well, the fact that not that them as a specific example, but also different cultures have different concepts and strengths of ownership. And so it seems then, therefore, that the concept of ownership may not in and of itself be fundamental and universal, but maybe is a manifestation of something deeper, like some deeper psychology. Ownership is just one manifestation of that, and it's very culturally dependent how that manifests. Did you have researchers been able to dig down deeper as to what like the sources of ownership are? Well, well, I think uh, I start off by discussing the, the idea of competition. So obviously, one goes to Darwin and talks about natural selection, and obviously, uh, you know, there's competition between individuals of a species, um, and so they will compete for resources, territory, mates, food, and so forth. And so that's kind of a one basic principle of ownership, which is if you're, if you're holding on to it, it's mine, and, and therefore I have to fight you for it. Um, but ownership is different in the sense that that's a convention, and that operates with kind of third-party uh, punishment. So if we are a member of a group and we recognize ownership, then 
uh, we understand that even though the owner isn't present, he may have gone off to fight a battle or raid the next village. He still owns the property, so we can't help ourselves to it. Uh, and if we do, then we can suffer the consequences of it. Animals don't tend to do that. Okay, So if they abandon um, a territory or they abandon food or whatever, then the next person can just help themselves to it. So they understand possession and that you have to fight for what you have. But the concept of ownership is a convention that really um, people have to agree upon. And that's what, that requires policing and laws. And that would have emerged presumably probably quite early in human um, development. But I think it really got amplified when we settled down and formed communities. So rather than being hunter-gatherers always on the move, now when you develop agriculture, uh, you start to collect resources, you domesticate animals, you domesticate crops, you start to have reserves – and, um, and these need to be protected, and you need to go off on battles and uh, <laughs> warring parties, but you want to come back and make sure that your homestead is protected. And then, of course, this also allows you to become the establishment, to build up hierarchies of wealth, and then to pass that on as inheritance. So now um, resources in terms of crops and food and, and money is starting to appear now. These are things which can form transactions and be used and, and passed on to uh, you know, to give advantage to your offspring and your siblings and all the people that you want to advantage. So it will have been um, some form of possession will have been there very very early on as it is with primates and other animals. But the convention of ownership, I think, is actually requires cognitive machinery to kind of work out the you know who owns what and what are the consequences to so almost predict uh, the course of action. So so that's kind of sophisticated, and there's very little evidence. Uh, that you see third-party punishment in animals. So there's some reports that corvids, crows, you know, these guys are very clever. The feathered apes, as they're yeah. sometimes called. Um, they may do something like that, but you don't see a lot of very good evidence that there's this third-party punishment. And yet you see it in human children by about three to four years of age. Yeah, and even Jay and I have both raised kids, right? And uh, Jay's younger daughter, uh, who's three now, but even, you know, previously she will take something whether it's hers or not and she'll look at you and go this is mine like she totally knows that kind and and she seems like i have to assert my ownership over this oh, yeah. to the adults in the room like that's a concept that comes in very very early but still that's not too early to be learned right no no and, and you're right and that's actually one of the most common words uh, you know, mine is one of the first words that children learn and so what they appreciate is that possessions are a form of dominance and status and you know not over 90 percent of the conflicts in nurseries and playgrounds are over toys uh, um, and possessions and very often it's the acquisition of the possession which is the goal not the actual possession so you know a child might fight for a toy, go and take it from another child, and then once they go, they'll ban it, and then go after another child's toy. So this is how you establish dominance. Um, and it's not, un, you know, it's not too dissimilar to, um, you know, primates do the same thing as well. So there are these hierarchies. We use possessions as a way of signaling status, and that's no different. We grew up like that in the West. Um, and, of course, that's not the case in all cultures. So I think there is a, there's a need to establish um, acceptance, and, uh, and there's a need to not be ostracized, and that can be in the form of establishing status. But that, in other cultures, that's also manifest by how well you integrate with others. So they're more interdependent. Um, that's not to say that they don't have hierarchies. They're just not the same structures that we have. Yeah, so status and being successful in your society are the real goals. The possession is just a means to an end, and that's culturally dependent. That's right, and that's why I call it social peacocking. So, you know, in the animal kingdom, um, Darwin was really confused by um, adaptations, which seemed to be so inefficient. So why did the peacock evolve such a ludicrous 
you know, display. It's really expensive. It's cumbersome. Uh, requires a lot of uh, metabolic resources. That means the birds can't effectively fly. Well, this is because of a process in addition to natural selection called sexual selection. So uh, the males typically compete against each other because of the imbalance between the number of um, potential sperm that a male can produce relative to the cost of raising an egg for the female. The males literally can have many more children. So they compete with each other for the attention of the females. The females, on the other hand, they have to choose the males who have the best genes. So what happened was a war of, uh, a war of attrition in terms of advertising your genes. As Darwin said, they developed ornaments and ornaments. So this is the horns and the coloring. And that's why the males in the animal kingdom are the most colorful and show the bizarre displays. Because these dis- displays uh, are markers for good genetic prowess. And in the case of the, 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 you know, the, uh, the peacock, it's true. The elaborate nature of that peacock tail is a direct marker of the genetic immune system. So um, we know that those with impoverished tails tend to have uh, poor immunity. Uh, so in a sense, it's a proxy for a genetic fit. Now, of course, humans also develop adaptations to make us more or less attractive to, to females and vice versa. Females also develop adaptations which are attractive to males. But we also had technology. We could also accumulate wealth. Again, this signals uh, you know, the advantages that you would have if you mate with me, if I've got all these resources. And that hasn't changed, of course. And that's why it's not just the beauty of the Ferrari or the fact it's, uh, you know, it's such a wonderful piece of engineering. It also signals a big way up how, how good your status is. So this is what we call social peacocking. Um, or, and in another sense, it's also the basis of what we call conspicuous consumption, that people buy and display luxury things Yes, they're better made goods, and they, you know, they may last longer. But a big factor in it is it's, you're showing off to other people just how successful you are. Uh, Bruce, tell us about the concept of endowment and what that tells us about ownership. Yeah, now, now endowments, are, now I have been doing some research on this because this is uh, getting back into the irrational nature that we value certain objects more than other ones. And it turns out that when objects come into your possession, you immediately, assuming you've got a pretty good sense of self-worth, you start to think your stuff is worth more than anyone else is willing to pay for it. So, I mean, that makes a lot of economic sense that you should always trade and ask more than others and try and buy things at a, at a you know, get a, get a deal on something. But there's a psychological process where as soon as you take ownership of it, you value it more. Now, this was established by Donny Kahneman and Richard Thaler, both recipients of the Nobel Prizes in Economics. Um, they had both worked on this phenomenon, looking at this imbalance between the price that people are willing to sell things of at and the price that others are willing to, to buy them at. And um, part of the explanation is to do with what's called the prospect theory. And this is what Kahneman got the Nobel Prize for. And this is the idea that the prospect of a loss weighs more heavily in your mind than the prospect of a gain. So you're always going to bias yourself to make sure you're not losing by asking more for your resources. But another component of this is actually the extent to which that object is part of your identity. And, and this is why um, traders, for example, people who do this for a living, they're not as, as emotionally invested in their products as, as novices. And so they show less of an endowment effect. And we've been looking at this in children, showing that if you uh, induce an endowment effect in a child by basically getting them to think about themselves or make pictures about themselves, their possessions are the objects that they have. They start to value them more. So we did this really cool experiment where we gave children – 
um, first of all, test to see if they could work out the relative value of these toys. And some of them were really good toys and some of them were a bit rubbish. Uh, we used a scale, a smiley face scale. And so the bigger the, bigger the smile, the more they liked the, the object or they thought it was good. And if it was frowning, they didn't think it was very good. So once they used the scale, it was a way that they could kind of work out the relative value of these toys. Now, these are three-year-olds. This is well before the endowment effect turns up naturally, which is usually about at least seven to eight years of age. Uh, so having established they can use the scale, we then get them two identical spinning tops. Okay, so these are two little plastics things that you might get out of, a, I don't know, McDonald's or something like that. And uh, we asked them, well, how much do you think these are? How much do you like these guys? And they put them on the same point of scale. So that means that they understood at this point these two identical things are equivalent. And then we did the thing is we gave them one of the toys, the spinning tops, and the experimenter took the one themselves. Then we did the manipulation. We got them to draw a picture about themselves and talk about themselves, or we got them to make a picture of their friend or talk about their friend, or we had a third controlled condition where they just made a farm scene. After they'd spent some time kind of being primed to think about themselves, someone else, or a farm scene, we then got them to evaluate the two identical tops again. And the children who had been primed to think about themselves, they thought that their top was worth much more than the experimenter's top, but the effect was not seen in the other two conditions. So that fits with this idea that as soon as you're kind of thinking about your, your possessions, then you start to value them more. And by the way, this was a study which was based on an adult study done with uh, people from Hong Kong, done by William Maddox, and a really cool study where they got Hong Kongers to think either as Westerners or to think of themselves as Chinese because they have dual nationality. And when they think of themselves as Westerners, they show the endowment effect. But when they saw themselves as being more collectivist Chinese, they, the effect was more reduced. So in a sense, the endowment effect is this manifestation of this extended self-concept, the idea that our possessions are somehow you know, an extension of who we are. And if we have this mm-hmm. kind of self-opinion, then we think our stuff is worth that much more. So Bruce, if I, if I buy your book, will you come to my house and take all the crap out of it for me? Oh, yeah, I'm not Marie Kondo. Uh, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> it's a spark joy in you. <laughs> it's, just, it's kind of funny. Actually, it's interesting that um, a number of the reviewers have said, well, look, you haven't said anything I don't disagree with entirely, maybe, but you, you, you haven't provided me with an answer. You know, what do I need to do? And um, I haven't got a solution. All I've got to say is that just ask yourself, do you really need to be buying that next thing? Or do you really need that? And And I think actually paradoxically, that actually might make you appreciate what you've got more in the sense that if you, if you just don't think it, if you're, we're on autopilot a lot of the time and you think about it, we, we tend to buy things because we just think, oh, well, I can't afford it. Well, you know, I can, I can do this. Why not? But I think if we start to question, what is the motivation? Am I doing this because my neighbor's got, they've just bought a new car? If we start to ask those sorts of questions, I think we become more mindful, to use that dreadful term, uh, of what actually is uh, the motivation for doing things. And I think that can only be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's metacognition. It's the same that we are always talking about. That yeah, it's a difference between being on autopilot, just going along with your culture and your evolved biases, versus actually getting outside yourself and thinking about: Is this rational? Does this really help me? And the people who can do that, like traders who divorce themselves from their emotions and just do things rationally, they have an advantage over you in any kind of transactional exchange because they're not just going with the flow of their psychology. Absolutely. I, I think I mean, you put it beautifully. I mean, metacognition, I, not only is it a better way to live, I think it actually uh, bestows benefits to, the, the, you know, you become more appreciative, yeah. more grateful for what you've got. And, and, and I think, I mean, I teach this course, The Science of Happiness here at Bristol, and this is, 
what I'm doing in a lot of that course is basic cognitive psychology, just getting them to kind of really, you know, stop being on that autopilot, as you put it, and actually start to evaluate things, be more critical. I mean, I think critical thinking is really important for happiness. People think, oh, critical thinking, you'll, you'll just be miserable. Well, not really. Not at all. No, I think it's liberating. I think it, I think it provides a, a different viewpoint. It means you're more appreciative of, of the positive things in life, and you're probably going to be more satisfied in many instances. And I think you could apply that to consumerism um, and the way that we, um, we, we buy stuff and uh, seem to have this need to have possessions. Because we are really the only species on the planet that does this. I mean, yes, other animals have tools, but they throw them away once they've used them. We, on the other hand, build sheds to hold all the tools and then put them on display and then collect them by uh, alphabetical order and so on. So we have this really strange relationship with physical things. Bruce, it's a fascinating book and a fascinating talk. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. I really enjoy it. Can't wait to see you guys again. Yep. Thanks, Bruce. Take yeah, care. We'll see you soon, man. Bye. All right. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Bompus Socks. Steve, do you have like a sock drawer that is filled with socks from like the last 20 years of your life? No. I've purged my sock drawer a couple of times. Now it's filled with matching socks and high-quality socks like bombs. <laughs> so, so is that a fact? <laughs> well, you're lucky. Cause that is a fact. My, I have like this sock drawer that I just – I don't know. It's like the history of my life. You know, I could be like, oh, <laughs> this is what I had in, in, you know, in high school. So high school. it is though. Steve, Steve's right though. It is, you know, just look, do yourself a favor and throw away that nasty stuff. Just get rid of all of it and go to Bombas. Go to, go check out Bombas socks. These are the socks that you deserve. Bombas has a new line of socks that are made from an amazingly soft, warm, and naturally moisture wicking merino wool. Designed with all of Bombas's classic comfort features. Yeah, they're great. They keep you cool and dry on your morning run. They stay comfortable in your freezing office air conditioning. Um, <laughs> they're they're going to work in any climate. And for every pair of socks that you buy, this is my favorite part, you guys. Bombas will donate a pair to someone in need. Buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash skeptics. Do it today and get 20% off of your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash skeptics for 20% off. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Theme. The theme is gene editing. Ah. And mm -hmm. these were submitted by a friend of the show, Kevin Fulta, who is a researcher. <gasps> hey, Kevin. Although I did have to swap one of the ones he sent me out because we, we used it as a news item already. Mm. So obviously, that wouldn't, we couldn't use it as a news item. But I just found a different one. So we're good. So two of the three were ones that, so he came up with the theme and two of the three items. Ready? Yes. Okay. Yep. Three items about gene editing. Two, of course, are real. One is fake. Here we go. Item number one, a patient was treated for sickle cell disease with HIV engineered to deliver a corrected copy of the hemoglobin gene to his blood stem cells. Item number two, researchers have used a bubble of fat to deliver gene therapy through a nebulizer to patients with cystic fibrosis, improving lung function. And item number three, Poliovirus was engineered to introduce a new mutation which counteracts the effects of Huntington's disease in one patient whose disease progress has slowed significantly. 
Uh, but I think it's Evan's turn to go first. So we have a patient, and they were treated for sickle cell disease with HIV engineered to deliver a corrected copy of the hemoglobin gene to his blood stem cells. Can you edit your stem cells while they're in? It's talking about stem cells outside the body being corrected or worked on, but inside the body? Is that what the key is? here is? So I guess I'll move on to the second one, where they've used a bubble of fat to deliver gene therapy through a nebulizer. It can I call, it's an inhaler, a uh, asthma, uh, people with asthma take these inhalers. Is that the nebulizer? Am I thinking of that correctly? Yeah, like an inhaler. An inhaler. And these patients have cystic fibrosis, and it improves their lung function. A bubble of fat. Well, uh, I suppose so. To deliver gene therapy. A bubble of fat. That's a pretty small bubble. You have to get it down. Can can you get a bubble of fat so small and also a vector or a delivery system for the gene therapy itself? That would be remarkable. It's, it seems improbable because when you think of a bubble of fat, you think some, there's no way you get that down small enough. Um, engineer that thing small enough to, to do what it is you want to do. But that could be the case. The fat is the... That's really interesting. I have a feeling that one's going to be science. Um, and then the last one about polio virus, it was engineered to introduce a new mutation, which counteracts the effects of Huntington's disease. Oh, I wish my wife Jennifer were here. She could tell me some things about this. Um, no, no phoning a friend. No phone. Yeah, no <laughs> lifelines here. Yeah. That was the engineering of the polio virus to introduce a new mutation. Well, it sounds like you could do that. It does sound like you could do that. So uh, it, it sounds like science to me. That just leaves me the one about the sickle cell disease being the fiction. But I really don't have anything solid to offer here on that one because this one's way above my pay grade. So I just will have to go with my gut and say that that one is the fiction. But guys, please. Uh, the please, HIV? You, you don't have. Yeah, the HIV one is, I think, is the fiction. But, you know, please, guys, don't don't just go with me to go with me. No disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jay. So the patient that was treated for sickle cell disease was an HIV engineer to deliver the corrected copy of the hemoglobin gene. That just sounds like, you know, with all the different technology that we've developed to treat HIV, I could see that something like that coming out of it. Um, it would be wonderful if it were true as well. Um Second one here, the uh, the bubble of fat that's delivering gene therapy through a nebulizer. So I, the thing I don't understand is a bubble of fat is delivering gene therapy. When you're saying gene therapy, I just don't know what the mechanism is happening there. So the bubble of fat is is delivering gene therapy through the nebulizer. So they're breathing it in and it's doing something. I don't know how, like, I don't know what the, the effect is there. I don't know what's happening to that bubble of fat when it gets into your lungs. Like, how is it actually altering genes. Uh, and the polio virus was engineered to introduce a new mutation which counteracts the effects of Huntington's disease. Now, if they're going to use the polio virus, so they engineered a polio virus, they changed it. And now what it does, instead of delivering the polio virus, it's delivering a mutation which counteracts the effects of Huntington's disease. I think out of all of them, that one seems the most likely. So I'm going to say between the first two, yeah, I think I'm going to agree with Evan. I'm going to agree with Evan. I'm not, I'm not sure about that first one. Something about it just doesn't seem right to me. All right, Bob. Yeah, these are kind of hard. Like, there's nothing here that I could definitively say that's that's wrong or doesn't make sense. The closest one is the the bubble of fat, and I, I don't know what the mechanism is here. Uh, for one and three, they seem to be consistent in that you know one's using polio virus, one's using HIV. 
uh, engineered. I'm not, and like Jay said, I think Jay hit on it. Um, I'm not sure how bubble of fat is going to deliver the gene therapy, but I mean, any of these could be true. Any of them could be fake for various technical reasons. Right? So I re- really shot in the dark, but I'll say that the bubble of fat's fiction. And Kara. Uh, I was leaning towards the bubble of fat one too, but then I was thinking, you know, people with cystic fibrosis, this is a lung condition, right? So um, it does make sense that they would nebulize. I didn't, I don't fully understand. I guess it needs to be um, lipophilic, right? So they would somehow be able to put the mechanism. I love fat. Yeah, the virus or something like that that they're using um, to get it into their cells into a lipid and then they when they inhale the lipids it gets like it's a more targeted treatment i guess instead of injecting or swallowing something and it going throughout the cells of their body because i would assume here that the cells that need to be reached might not be easily reached um via the bloodstream might be easier to just do it um via breathing so i could kind of see that one it was the first one that like triggered my spidey sense but i think that that one it might be science and for me it's like between okay engineered hiv for sickle cell treatment or engineered polio virus for huntington's disease barring any like all things being equal the polio virus one seems the least likely to me because there are questions about whether or not we should even be including certain polio viruses in vaccines because we're trying to eradicate polio and it just doesn't seem as prudent to genetically engineer a polio virus and utilize it for treatment. Whereas HIV will never be eradicated. Um, It has a zoonotic um, spillover. Um, We know that it has reservoirs in nature. It just doesn't seem as much of a, a, a viral profile that we would want to keep safe. So to me, just for that reason alone, I might have to break with the other people and say the polio virus one seems least likely. But again, this is all a shot in the dark. Okay, so you guys are spread out, which you love. That's you pretty love good. It. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which order? Which order do you want me three, to take? Two, one. Did you three, me two, how one. All right. Yeah. Two, three, Doesn't one. matter. All right. <laughs> Jay spoke up first. So we'll do three, two, one. Polio virus was engineered to introduce a new mutation which counteracts the effects of Huntington's disease in one patient whose disease progress has slowed significantly. One patient. One Kara, patient. you think mm-hmm. this one is the fiction. The boys think this one is science. And this one is the fiction. Good job, yes. Kara. Great job. Polio yeah. is too dangerous and Huntington's is too rare. It's but they were yeah. talking about like just one patient. Uh, I mean, this I, thought, one, I thought this was isolated enough that this wasn't some sort of universal. Number one was one patient, too. Yeah, but they still would have had to engineer a polio virus, which is too risky for it's Huntington's, not, which yeah, like, it, almost nobody has anymore. I mean, not, that's not true, that's but not it's true. a very I'm rare disease. It's a rare disease, but even still, yeah. but it's a horrible disease. And if we it is horrible. It, it's definitely be on my short list of a genetic disease that for I want to sure. cure. Especially but polio because, yeah, is not you can the eradicate right kind it. of virus. It's not the right kind of virus. Mm-hmm. You can't eradicate it because there's always going to be a spontaneous mutation rate. Oh, in Huntington's? All you can do is minimize it, yeah. Oh, you're right. So I shouldn't have said eradicate, but we can prevent passing it down. We can reduce it. Yeah, we can yeah, reduce yeah, it yeah. down to its basic meta, um, mutation rate. That's mm-hmm. it. It's spontaneous mutation rate. Uh, but then, if you know, the thing is, it shows anticipation. So uh, a patient, the first patient in a family to get it, will get it later in life, and then we could prevent it from getting worse in each subsequent generation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it becomes really horrible in later generations. And if we could cure it, we could prevent all of that badness. But 
We well, can't. and St- Steve, is it safe to assume that people are working on yeah, genetic therapies sure. for it right now? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. But you're right, Kara. The poliovirus wouldn't really be a good virus to use as for genetic engineering. Um, so that, that that's a wrong choice of a virus. And also this sort of the counteracting mutation I just made up. I don't know if that exists. Mm. All right, but let's go back to number Woo-hoo. two. Researchers have used a bubble of fat to deliver gene therapy through a nebulizer to patients with cystic fibrosis, improving lung function. That one is science. Now, the reason why they are using a bubble of fat is because previous research was using a lentivirus, and that was causing infections, which was a huge problem. This is was a wait. Huge, how, how do lentil viruses cause infections? Yeah, lentil <laughs> lentivirus. This is a, this <laughs> a huge <laughs> limiting factor on using viruses for gene therapy. Was this cystic fibrosis research that was being done? Hmm. Uh, huge problem. So they basically said, we want to find a way to get the genes in there without a virus. This is bypass the the risky oh. part of, of it. So they figured out a way to get the, the genetic. Uh, fix right uh into the into the mutated gene uh without the virus using just literally a bubble of fat as the vector however how how's a f- bubble it, of vector it, it improved be. lung function but only by 3.7% in the in the initial study so it's not a cure you know mm-hmm. it may have a, a modest clinical you know uh improvement uh, but it's really more of a proof of concept. They, Interesting. But it, it worked. Even the fact that it worked at all means that maybe they'd be able to tweak and iterate it, and maybe get it up to a clinically significant effect. You know, but because even is, if it's you know a small improvement, like cystic fibrosis is incredibly painful, right? Yeah, like it's a yeah. horrible disease, oh, and yeah. so just being able to feel better for a yeah. while might be worth it. Right. Right. So anyway, this is like we're at the beginning of that research arc. Maybe in 10 or 20 years, you know, this will be something that will make its way to the clinic. But for now, that was a proof of concept study. Uh, And number one, a patient was treated for sickle cell disease with HIV engineered to deliver a corrected copy of the hemoglobin gene to his blood stem cells is science. This is probably the most encouraging one of the the two real ones here. Uh, so they're not calling it a cure yet because it hasn't been long enough. They want him to go five years without symptoms before they say he was cured of sickle cell wow. disease. But he's getting there. So he's cool. so far so good. They Evan, they took the bone marrow out, then did the used an inactivated HIV to deliver the corrected copy of the gene, and then and then did a bone marrow transplant. Wow, back that is in. awesome. Okay, so that's why I'm thinking, like, yeah. how do you do this inside of a body? You, and HIV is a virus you would use for this because it's a retrovirus, right? The the virus inserts genes, you know, genetic material into DNA. That's what it does. Uh, so that's what you would want to use for this kind of uh, viral gene therapy as a vector. You want to use some kind of retrovirus or some kind of virus that that's what it does, inserts into DNA. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, but yeah, you think, oh, HIV, it's scary, right? That you're going to be using that, but they inactivated it. Um, so yeah, that's cool. So that, you know, sickle cell may be on the short list of a cured genetic disease. Good. Now you'll notice that none of these used CRISPR, right? No, yeah, uh, I was expecting yeah, CRISPR to come up at some point and didn't. Yeah, CRISPR is just, it's new technology. It hasn't really been approved for treatment of humans yet. It's, we're just mm-hmm. starting to get to human trials with it. Uh, the, Viral using viruses as a vector, that's 30 year old technology now, or at least, you know, getting close to 30 years old. But it's, you know, we're just getting to like these, oh, maybe we've, you know, we had a clinical effect. That's how, that's how long it takes to do this sort of stuff, 
grows. I do think things will move faster with CRISPR, but still, you know, this kind of research takes place on the order of magnitude of decades, unfortunately. But we are seeing, you know, the maybe the light at the end of the tunnel for genetic therapy. And I just hope, you know, in our lifetime, we're going to start seeing genetic diseases fall one by one, you know, because this is a, this is a genetic diseases, like especially these kinds of like single mutation or we know what the mutation is. Uh, these kind of diseases, they are potentially curable, man. You can just mm-hmm. change the, change that genetic mutation. And in some cases, it's a point mutation, you know, like. Yeah. Like or at the very disease. least, even just straight up preventable. Yeah. So it, like, not there's only, a way it, to just do it in the embryo or something. Yeah, you could do in vitro fertilization and just correct any genetic mm-hmm. problems right then and there, which is what the, I remember the Chinese researcher tried to was do, but that was trying just to do. Yeah. flawed, <laughs> flawed approach. But yeah, then then it's like, okay, let's just get rid of all your inheritable genetic diseases before you even fertilize the egg. There you go, you know, or shortly after fertilizing the egg. Um, I do think that we, in this century, I think definitely, we're, we'll, we oh, will God, see the yeah. end of, of most genetic diseases. Wow. Um, or really, just a Steve? Massive that's a, that's reduction. A massive reduction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jay, just, uh, Jay, 80 years to go this century. I mean, look, yeah, this century look what CRISPR's done in a decade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's totally there's... plausible. There's no reason why it can't happen. It's just a matter of making the technology work. There's no theoretical reason why we can't do it. Um, and we're getting there. We are getting there. Hey, this guy, you know, we may have cured him of a sickle cell disease. You know, we're there. All right, guys. Uh, good job, Kara. Yeah, Kara. Yay! Well done. Evan, give us a quote. Science doesn't purvey absolute truth. Science is a mechanism. It's a way of trying to improve your knowledge of nature. It's a system for testing your thoughts against the universe and seeing whether they match. And this works not just for the ordinary aspects of science, but for all of life. I should think people would want to know that what they know is truly what the universe is like, or at least as close as they can get to it. And that was spoken by Isaac Asimov. Isaac! Yeah, in an interview with Bill Moyers on his World of Ideas show back in 1988. Boy, you know, Asimov is just one of those science communicators, obviously science fiction writer, but also a fantastic science communicator. He's just able to bring these concepts to the public much in the same way sort of Carl Sagan did. I think of Sagan a lot when I think of Asimov in the same class of communicator. Just wonderful, sure. wonderful. He just really lays it out there simply, eloquently, and allows people to really understand what's going on with science. Yeah, I mean, Asimov was more prolific. He wrote 500 books. books, yeah. Oh, 500 hundreds of the, books. Yeah, more than wrote or edited. So. So say wrote or edited more than 500 books. Uh, and many of them were science communication books. I think I probably read more Asimov books that were science books than science fiction. And I've read a lot of his science fiction. All right. Thank you, Evan. Thanks. And thank you guys for joining me this Welcome, week. Steve. Thank thanks, you. Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible.